welcome to an ECFR podcast. My name is Katrina Botel, and here we will be speaking to Mark Leonard, director of ECFR and co-author of the publication Geoeconomics, Seven Challenges to Globalization. In the publication, you argue that the biggest conflicts are between the world's greatest powers and that the main battlefield is economic rather than military. Why and how has this battlefield changed? Well, 100 years ago, in 1914, globalization collapsed because the world's most powerful nations went to war with each other. And if you look at the world today, it's almost the exact opposite of that. What we're seeing is that the biggest countries in the world don't want to go to war with each other. They enjoy the benefits of trading with each other and of interdependence. But at the same time, they want to compete with each other for glory, for power, and to get ahead in the world. And therefore, they have to find different ways of of doing that. And it is their reluctance to use military power to fight each other, which is forcing them to use economic and other means which are gradually unravelling the global economy. And what we're seeing is that the global system no longer regulates and provides rules to prevent conflict between countries. It's actually become the main battleground within which people are are fighting against each other. And um, interdependence, therefore, has gone from being seen as a barrier to conflict, something which kept countries together and stopped them from competing, towards being the main currency of power itself. So what countries are trying to do is to create asymmetric relationships between each other so that other people depend more on them than they do on those countries themselves and to exploit those asymmetries to uh, become more powerful and to uh, assert their, their force on the world stage. And that means a complete revolution in terms of how people uh, in the corporate sector think about political risk. Because a long time ago, it was something which happened in small peripheral countries. You know, you were worried about wars and revolutions that might uh, threaten your workers. You might get factories confiscated. But now it's not something which is happening on the periphery and it's not something that's happening on a country-by-country basis because the, the biggest conflicts in the world are between the biggest powers. It's Russia against the West, it's China against Japan, it's China against the United States, it's Saudi Arabia against Iran. And those conflicts, because the risks of direct military conflict are so great that people don't want to risk it, they're mainly being played out on an economic battlefield. And that is leading to a, a different kind of world from the world that we had come to expect after the end of the Cold War, because it's a world where there is trade, there is interdependence, um, uh, but the purpose behind it is different. So Edward Lutvak, who came up with this idea of geoeconomics, talked about it as being um, a battle which was fought in the grammar of commerce, but the logic of war, and that's, that's where we are at the moment. In the publication, you speak about seven challenges. What are those challenges? Basically... Um, what we're seeing is that there's still the same sorts of economic links between different countries, but the purpose is, is sort of changing. And the things that we thought were bringing us together are now kind of driving us apart. So maybe I'll mention three in particular because they bring this to life. So the first is moving from uh, 
from the idea of trade and the logic of trade and of liberalizing trade between countries and breaking down barriers uh, to uh, a period where people are increasingly thinking about economic warfare. So what we've seen is more sanctions than ever before in history. Um, Western countries don't want to use military force against Russia over Ukraine, so they have introduced sanctions. They don't want to bomb Iran's nuclear program into destruction, so they use sanctions. China uh, wants to punish Japan for its territorial claims over Senkaku. It stops Chinese companies getting hold of rare earths. They want to uh, punish the Philippines for uh, their assertiveness in their area. They ban Filipino bananas. Russia wants to bully uh, Ukraine into uh, not signing an association agreement with the EU. It uses all sorts of barriers to, to, Russian, uh, to Ukrainian trade, from food safety rules to uh, closing down um, uh, other sources. So what we're seeing is the weaponization of, uh, of trade, but particularly of finance. So the most stringent areas are when uh, countries are shut out of access to, 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 to capital and to, to global resources, which is some of the most powerful, powerful and painful sanctions that, that have been used, uh, particularly by the West, against Iran and against Russia. We're seeing the manipulation of currencies, um, uh, the prices of commodities. Um, so a lot of the basic uh, economic transactions are being weaponized. Second um, feature is moving from an era where we thought that multilateral institutions and uh, international law would somehow uh, stop countries from fighting against each other. And instead of that, we're moving towards uh, an era where you're seeing a, a geopoliticization of those uh, institutions and those laws. And um, a quest to try and create gated markets which you have superior access to. So in the 90s, the big talk was about the World Trade Organization and the Doha Round and coming up with universal rules uh, which would allow countries to, to work together. Nowadays, what you're seeing is a fragmentation of competing regimes between like-minded countries. So the war between Ukraine and... Sorry, the, the crisis over Ukraine started because of a conflict between two regional integration projects. There was, on the one hand, Russia's Eurasian Economic Union and the Customs Union that they wanted Ukraine to sign. And on the other hand, was the European Union's Eastern, uh, Eastern Partnership and the deep and comprehensive free trade agreement, which they wanted Ukraine to sign. Um, but if you look at all parts of the world, you've got the same sort of dynamics taking place. So in Asia, the US-led TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, is uh, rubbing up against the Chinese-led RCEP um, uh, in um, Latin America. The, Mer the Mercosur uh, integration project is, uh, is up against the Pacific Alliance. You're seeing um, uh, increasingly uh, uh, powerful integration projects which are often designed to help the, the core, the most powerful countries in those regions at the expense of the, the periphery um, around it. And international law is not something which is removing tensions, often it's increasing tensions. You can see this particularly in the way that Asian countries uh, talk about the use of international law around their um, 
their maritime disputes where there's this new word that's emerged which is lawfare uh, which gives you a sense of, of, of how that's working and then the third area um, which is very different which accentuates um, the other types of, of contests is the emergence of a new wave of state capitalism. So in the 1990s and the early years of this century, globalization was all about the Washington consensus and the retreating role of the state from the economy. Since 2008 and the global financial crisis, the state is back in a big way as a central player in the economy, not just because it uh, because there are lots of state-owned companies, but there are new ways of exercising power over the economy which have transnational implications. One is the, the role of central banks, which is leading to these sorts of currency wars that we're seeing in different places. Another is the idea of strategic sectors and regulations which help your national champions and hinder others. And um, that uh, use of these state tools is often a way of projecting your own power at the expense of others and uh, reinforces the moves towards economic warfare and the uh, pursuit of gated markets rather than uh, global trade. Looking at those challenges, who are the winners and who are the losers? It's a very complex picture and um, some of the people who look like they're winners today could be the losers of tomorrow. I mean, a very good example of that is if you, if you think about economic warfare, the people who are using these techniques the most successfully and the most aggressively are Western uh, governments. So uh, the US and, and the European Union in particular, because they have the biggest markets and, and the, the US has, controls the dollar, which gives you a, a stranglehold on the global financial system. So it looks like they are the winners from this and the losers are the countries that are being shut out of these areas, whether it's you know Russia, Iran um, <clears throat> and other kind of weaker countries who are, who are dependent on these things. But in the longer term, if these sorts of techniques are overused, I think it encourages um, other countries to hedge against the Western-led institutions and therefore could mean that they build alternatives and that this accelerates the move towards convertibility of the, of the renminbi in China. We're seeing the emergence of new uh, payment systems emerging because people are worried about being shut out of SWIFT. So we're seeing China's union pay system being driven forward quite quickly. Um, it's going to take a long time for this to happen, but I think it will happen more quickly. And if that does happen, then the system which has allowed the West to control the rules of the global economy will become much more difficult to, to sustain over time. The other losers, I think, are um, Western multinationals because they are often uh, caught in the crosshairs of these sorts of uh, fights. So when um, European and American uh, governments introduced sanctions against Russia, the Russians retaliated with uh, their own sanctions. And that meant, that, for example, that uh, German car manufacturers lost 15 billion euros. Um, and you can see that dynamic being replicated in all sorts of other places. But even within the West, there are kind of losers from these sorts of things. So the BNP Paribas, for example, the big French bank, got these kind of vast fines for breaking America's unilateral sanctions against um, various different regimes. The other, um, uh, so, so that, I think that's what's happening on, on economic warfare. Uh, on state capitalism, 
Um, again, I think Western multinationals, are, you know, are big losers uh, from that because their governments are, are not necessarily as well set up to uh, to, to use these sorts of techniques. Um, and also uh, um, uh, Western consumers, because prices have gone down a lot over uh, as a result of unfettered globalization. So they, we could see prices going up as a result of these sorts of things. Um, uh, but uh, the winners um, are from state capitalism are probably big state-owned enterprises from um, uh, fr from countries like China uh, in particular. China is also a surprising winner from the sanctions because often what happens is that the West will introduce sanctions against other countries and uh, that often creates market share for Chinese companies who come in uh, behind uh, and, and, and backfill um, the, the, the loss of trade which um, other countries uh, incurred. Um, when it comes to the sort of gated markets, um, and um, the people who win, I think, are the biggest countries in each region because they tend to be able to, to create rules which benefit them the most. And the losers are often the smaller countries, maybe countries that think of themselves as pivot nations that are trying to hedge against different sources, uh, against different places. Some countries have done that very successfully. Uh, Singapore is a perfect example of a country that is very, very carefully balancing its interests between uh, China and America. Um, but uh, countries like Ukraine, for example, find that that space to be a pivot nation gets squeezed almost to nothing and you have to make very, very tough choices. And I think what's happening, uh, what could happen in the future is that there'll be um, more uh, countries that are forced to, to make those tough choices and that being a small country stuck in the middle could be a, a, an uncomfortable and, and uh, an awkward place to be. In the conclusion, you mentioned a few thoughts on how states can prevent geopolitics from unravelling the globalisation of the world economy. What are the options? What can states do? I think the first thing that needs to happen is uh, some sort of attempt to write rules for this new era, because in a way we're in uncharted territories at the moment. And um, there are lots of rules of the road for normal warfare, various conventions which have been signed to make sure that people don't commit mass atrocities and that their kind of behaviour is is regulated. Um, but there isn't any equivalent to these different kinds of economic wars. So I think it would make sense to agree some basic principles um, in order to protect against worst case scenarios because they could have disastrous consequences. I think, secondly, all states are going to have to find the right sort of balance between laissez-faire and intervention in order to pursue strategic goals. Uh, you know, nobody wants to go back to a world where um, you have state planning in every single country, but at the same time, um, I do think that um, uh, we're finding uh, that uh, Western countries could learn a lot from uh, China's infrastructure first model and, and adapt it to their strengths. Um, they could find different ways of uh, of making their state into an enabling force for, for, for economic activity um, uh, in their countries. Um, thirdly, I, I do think that um, small countries are going to have to come up with clever ways of, of uh, pooling their resources to make sure they don't get squashed by uh, the big bullies in each of the regions. And the fourth and final point, I think, is that you need to pursue a two-level game. On the one hand, ideally... 
uh, companies, governments, individuals should try and get the world back onto the enlightened path that it was in the past, where you're trying to come up with uh, global regimes and, and rule-based ways of dealing with these tensions. But at the same time, um, you have to be aware that we know we don't any longer live in the end of history, so therefore you have to work out coping mechanisms for a much less than perfect fallen world that we're inhabiting today. And that does mean fundamentally changing your kind of strategies, whether you're a, a government or a, a company or a, a charity um, to deal with a, a world where there is much more tension and a lot more conflict and where if you're not smart, you could find yourself being wiped out or crushed by the uh, titanic struggles which are going on between the great powers in the world. You can find a link to the publication and more information about geoeconomics on our website at ecfr.eu.